It is time to answer some big questions about our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light, lasers, optics, and fascinating tech news. Each episode, you'll hear groundbreaking stories from around the world about the fibers of science, from its triumphant past to its audacious future. Brought to you by Photonics Media. This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. A team of researchers is working on developing an artificial intelligence-based terahertz radiation scanning unit to address the limitations of infrared thermal scanners in accurate and early detection of coronavirus patients. The unique absorption fingerprint of terahertz radiation in lungs and the contrast thermal image of affected and healthy lungs will help doctors and paramedical staff identify such cases at an early stage when the patient is apparently asymptomatic and not showing any virus symptoms. Harvard and MIT researchers have found a way to correct for signal loss in quantum computing with a prototype quantum node that can catch, store, and entangle bits of quantum information. A quantum internet could be used to send unhackable messages, improve the accuracy of GPS, and enable cloud-based quantum computing. And finally, scientists from the Royal Netherlands Meteorological Institute have been using data from the Copernicus Sentinel-5P satellite to monitor both weather and pollution over Europe. The new images clearly illustrate a strong reduction of nitrogen dioxide concentrations over major cities across Europe, specifically Milan, Paris, and Madrid. Today's episode is sponsored by Comsol, the leading developer of multi-physics simulation software, which includes tools for building and deploying simulation apps. Comsol's wave and ray optics capabilities are used for modeling imaging and sensing in consumer electronics and biotechnology, information processing in communication systems, and more. See how the Comsol software fits your optical analysis needs at www. Dot .comsol.com and by PI Physique Instrumenta. PI manufactures world-class precision motion control, alignment, and automation systems, including air bearings, hexapods, and piezo drives at locations in North America, Europe, and Asia. PI's customers are leaders in high-tech industries and research institutes in fields such as photonics, biotech, life sciences, semiconductors, and aerospace. Visit www.pi-usa.us. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Dr. Adam Wax. Uh, I'm a professor at Duke University, where I'm in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. Uh, I'm also the founder and president of Lumetica, a company we founded to commercialize low-cost OCT technology for my laboratory. Dr. Adam Wax is a leading pioneer in the fields of tomography and early disease detection. He started his career earning dual bachelor's degrees in electrical engineering and physics back in 1993, then soon earned his PhD, started a company, and became a fellow of both SPIE and the AIMBE. Since 2015, his work has been cited nearly 4,000 times, and in 2019, he contributed to or wrote at least 18 peer-reviewed papers. Dr. Wax, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. 
So starting off, uh, looking back on your career and all that we just went over, does anything surprise you? Um, you know, the way that we get to our endpoints can really vary. You know, I can't claim that I started out in, as an undergrad or a, even a graduate student wanting to study biophotonics. Uh, but sometimes, you know, the events in the world around us change what we plan to do. Uh, to give you an example, um, I went to graduate school to study physics, and I had an interest in high-energy physics. But the first year of graduate school, they um, they killed the superconducting supercollider that they were building in Texas. And I realized there wasn't going to be a job for me after I graduated. So I, I looked around, and you know, lasers looked pretty interesting, and uh, the field of biophotonics was just getting started. So kind of a happy accident there. How would you summarize the last 26 years of your career? Were there any moments that stood out to you? Uh, you know, there's uh, peaks and valleys. I would say, you know, some of the most exciting things are when you, you know, get that key result or, uh, and I'm not talking about where, you know, it appears in the journal, but where you get that eureka moment in the lab. Those are the best ones for me. Uh, and doing biomedical studies, those often come, you know, in collaboration with a clinical collaborator, a doctor. So, you know, the first time that we studied the human esophagus, uh, that was a really exciting moment for us. You know, uh, most recently, um, we've done our low-cost OCT, and um, uh, that was pretty exciting, too, when I was able to reveal those clinical results. And uh, you know, I was really surprised by the, the great attention that we got for those. Uh, that was really special. We're going to jump into three of your claim to fames in your career, but uh, before we do, is there a moment that you recall uh, you're just in your lab or you're at your chalkboard and you just said, wow, there was like this very real Eureka moment for you? I would say the first result that I got when I started my program at Duke as an assistant professor, we were doing spectroscopic OCT and looking for the light scattering signatures from cell nuclei. And I had this idea and I thought it would work. And um, when we actually took the data and processed it, the signal was so clear. It was such an obvious oscillation in the spectrum due to these cell nuclei that, you know, literally my jaw fell open. I was so shocked. And that was a, a great eureka moment. I want to go into your work in low-cost optical coherence tomography, or OCT. Looking back, you submitted your findings on OCT back in the spring of 2019. Uh, those later published that year, but you wrote, I think as far back as 2018, that your two goals were to increase access for a wider range of applications and also to increase the access in low resource settings. Why was that so important to you? I think that that comes from, you know, my experience. Uh, in some of my previous work, uh, you know, it was developed during a different time. So, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act, when it, that passed, it, it really changed how people looked at health care. So whereas, you know, in the early 2000s, it was perfectly acceptable to have, you know, a $150,000 instrument and maybe, you know, several thousand dollars per use. But then things changed and we started to think of managed care. And um, I came to realize that the market probably wouldn't be there for these technologies. Uh, you're in kind of a unique situation as a biomedical engineer in that in order for someone to use your technology, you have to generate a medical device, a product that can be purchased and used by physicians. And unlike, say, a photonics device where the end user is the same as the purchaser, it's a really unusual system where the patient who benefits from it isn't really the one that purchases it. 
And it's not even the physician, but rather, you know, it's some combination of healthcare providers and payers, the insurance companies and Medicare. So for me, I wanted to be able to develop a technology that would have an impact. And to me, that path was, can I make something that's widely disseminated, that's going to be used by a lot of people? And, um, you know, I turned my attention to, well, who needs this health care the most? The people here in the U.S., they get a lot of great health care. We have everything available to us. But there's 7, 8 billion people on the planet, and those at you know, the lower end who don't have these resources don't get that great health care. So what can we do to change that equation and provide this health care for uh, these other people that need it as well? So this is something that's, you know, we've been developing for a number of years. You said, you know, our first uh, publication was in 2019 and we we're talking about in 2018. Believe it or not, we first started down this path in 2014. And it took a lot of work to get a satisfactory solution for a low-cost OCT. But we also wanted to kind of keep it quiet so that our work would have the impact when it came out. So we did develop it sort of in stealth mode for a number of years. And, uh, you know, I'm pleased to say now that now that we've revealed it and it's widely uh, known, it really gets attention across the globe. So I get a lot of, you know, interesting feedback and contacts here in the U.S., but I'm also hearing from people in India and in China and Ukraine and uh, in South America. It's, it's really amazing. Was there a moment in your career, whether it was uh, your time just as a student or even early on as a high schooler, was there ever a moment where you just said, in some general form, I want to make an impact? Or was this just building blocks to a certain moment that got very specific? Well, you know, I think every ambitious young person wants to make an impact. So, yeah, as a high schooler, I wanted to make an impact. And I was always good at science. But it wasn't until, you know, I was able to mature for a number of years that I began to see how to make an impact through this biomedical research. So, you know, this is what led my career choice to be, say, a biomedical engineer instead of a physicist or, uh, you know, an optics engineer, was that I thought I could help the most people, have the most impact by providing new biomedical devices for people. You were able to overcome two unique challenges with, that were with uh, traditional OCT lenses. One was uh, the low scanning rates and the other being the actual lens aperture. Can you talk about the process of finding the right balances between those two and how you came to develop uh, what you're calling the microelectromechanical mirror and its liquid lens? There's a lot of uh, science behind that, so if you want to sort of give the details on that. Sure. So um, in order to come up with an effective scanning scheme for our low-cost OCT, we tried a lot of different configurations. The first one that we had in mind was to use a pair of liquid lenses. And these are pretty cool because you can change the, the focus just by applying a different voltage to them, so they can focus at different planes. But at the time, they had introduced a new one that would let you shift the focus left and right. And it turns out you can actually scan a beam with that. So, you know, you shift left, you shift right, and the beam scans across, or you can do up and down. But it wasn't enough of a scan range to be, you know, satisfactory for scanning the retina in OCT. So we tried a couple of liquid lenses in parallel, and that improved the scanning range. Um, but they still aren't quite fast enough to do what we want. And this is probably because they're uh, inherently these capacitive objects. So the, the time constant's a little long. 
Uh, so we're getting like 10 hertz scanning rates, which were okay. So we decided to do more of a, a hybrid. These days you can get a MEMS or a microelectromechanical mirror fairly inexpensively, and they're pretty robust. And so we use that for some of the scanning, the fast, faster scanning. And then we pair it with the liquid lens, which provides uh, the additional ability to focus on the fly. A unique aspect is that sometimes, you know, as you're scanning, you won't scan across a completely flat plane. In fact, the retina is actually curved. So being able to tweak the focus a little bit with the liquid lens as you get to the end of the range is a great way to improve, you know, sort of the flatness of your image. Some of the people who have benefited from this technology were patients and burn victims. What results have you seen in that area, and where else would you like to see it go? So, you know, our work with looking at burn tissue was meant to address a shortcoming in the clinic. So right now, you know, when doctors look at burn victims, they rely on just their visual guidance. So they just, you know, they've got enough experience, and they get to 60 or 70% accuracy. Uh, the real difference is how deep is that burn and do I let it heal or do I abrade it and put on a skin graft? So to address that technology, we had a number of papers where we were using our spectroscopic OCT, looking at how the OCT signal at different wavelengths tells you about the tissue properties. And with those, we were able to predict how deep the burn was just by looking at some of the superficial areas. Right now, you know, our work in imaging skin is focusing on being able to go deep enough for it to be a useful diagnostic. People have been using OCT for many years and trying it out on skin, but the real problem is that it doesn't penetrate deep enough to tell you about the health of the skin. So if you have an obvious, you know, mole or cancerous lesion on the top, that's something you can look at. But really what you're trying to do is to see, you know, what is the blood supply at the dermis? And there you've got to be able to image two or three millimeters deep. Uh, so for us, we developed a technology called dual-axis OCT, and it's kind of a triangulation scheme. So you come in with light at one angle, and then you collect light at another angle, and it actually extends the depth that you can image into tissue. We think that combination of this dual-axis with low-cost OCT is just what's needed for this technology to be accepted for dermatology. Uh, you can imagine that if you know you brought an OCT scanner to a dermatologist, First of all, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Uh, the thing is really adapted to looking at the retina. So you need something that's fit for purpose. But then for them to adopt it, they have to see what the value of that technology is. And if you present them with, you know, a hundred, $120,000 prototype uh, for looking at skin, I think they're unlikely to adopt it because they're unclear what the benefit would be. I mean, who would spend that much money? On the other hand, you know, if you're able to knock the price down of the OCT to the $10,000 range, well, that becomes something that's really feasible to experiment with in the clinic. And that's where you can really get a lot of studies going and find out the utility, the clinical utility of your technology. So to sell this to those dermatology uh, sections, uh, was the selling point really just to lower the cost or did you have to convince them why it was applicable to their field? There's a sort of chicken and egg aspect there, right? So if it's very useful for them, then maybe the cost doesn't matter. But how do you show them that it's useful? They're not going to try it and experiment with it if it's too expensive, right? So by lowering the cost, we've opened up a lot of opportunities to try OCT in other fields, uh, dermatology being one of them. Uh, we recently had a paper that came out in uh, one of the OSA journals on 
using it for orthopedics, looking for, you know, cartilage in the, the knee joint. I think other fields, you know, like dentistry, um, we're doing some work in uh, the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, and I think the low-cost OCT can can improve the access for good imaging technologies uh, across a range of applications. Were you surprised that this technology was able to move beyond just optical analysis? No. Uh, well, I, I'd say I'm pleased, right? So I'm a biomedical engineer, and I'm trying to get these technologies to be used by lots of doctors. And um, I was really pretty amazed how, you know, once we introduced the low cost, I had so many people coming to me with ideas, hey, you should use it for this, hey, you should use it for that. And, um, you know, I'm trying to get to all these fields, um, but only got so many hours in the day. <laughs> right. And moving on to your, uh, your work in early cancer detection. You've given speeches and written papers on early cancer detection for years, but something that maybe not everyone knows is that this has actually had personal motivation for you and your father-in-law was diagnosed too late. Um, how did that moment affect you and your research? Well, um, it was definitely a motivating factor for me, but I think if I did a survey and asked a lot of people, there would be many similar stories. Pretty much, we don't do a great job in this country of finding cancer early. Uh, you know, some people uh, do have some indication. So like, for example, with the pap smear, you might find cervical cancer early. But if you've got a different type of cancer, let's say esophageal, uh, it might be very hard to find it until you get some other symptom. Uh, for example, if you had trouble swallowing for esophageal cancer. And at that point, there's such an opportunity for it to have spread. I mean, you can imagine how big uh, cancer has to grow before it impinges on your ability to swallow. And at that point, it's got the chance to spread throughout the body. So yeah, you know, it's personal for me. My father-in-law, uh, he did succumb to cancer uh, and it was really quick. He had a stomach pain one day and you know, he passed away three weeks later um, because they didn't find it early enough. And um, you know, I think this has been a, a you know, overriding priority in my work is to improve our diagnosis of disease, finding it early enough, or providing a technology that can be widely applied so that we can catch these diseases early enough and then have an opportunity for therapy, have an opportunity to cure that patient. I think this can benefit a lot of fields, and uh, I think the low-cost OCT still sticks in that vein, find these diseases early and you know, prevent blindness, for example. And was there a moment when you experienced that uh, with your father-in-law that you decided you just need to put everything down and change directions? Or what, did it kind of organically fit into your research anyway? So I was kind of working in that general field. You know, my father-in-law passed just as I was starting my own independent research career as an assistant professor. Uh, it was actually the same month. And it became really, you know, sort of a, a banner that I followed. Let's find this disease early. Let's try and improve patient care. So I was moving in that direction, but it was, you know, really his passing that, um, that galvanized me uh, for that cause. Hmm. You're working with angle-resolved low-coherence interferometry. Can you explain that and the science behind it and maybe how your lab was able to discover it? Sure. Um, so... Angle resolved low coherence interferometry, or ALCI, looks at angle resolved scattering to determine the size of scatterers. 
it's a diffraction effect, basically. Uh, if I have a tiny little object and I hit it with laser light, I'll see these rings that come off of it. And the rings can be analyzed to tell you the size of the object very accurately. What we do is we shine light on tissue and look at the size of the cell nuclei. And this turns out to be a very good indicator of early cancer. So before there's any painful bleeding mass or before there's um, any penetration of the cells, any metastases, they have an enlargement in the cell nuclei. And if you can find the disease then, you have the best opportunity for curing it. Um, you know, we started out with an intentional goal of being able to measure this change in cell nuclei. So back when I was a postdoc at MIT, you know, we would talk with pathologists and say, hey, what do you look at when you're trying to figure out if this biopsy sample is cancerous? And the answer came back again and again. We look at the size of the cell nuclei. And we devised a way to look at the size of those nuclei uh, by looking at this diffraction pattern. And um, we tuned the technique just right so that we're able to do it pretty reliably and very accurately. Your research and your progress kind of made looking at these conditions, it gave it visibility, I guess, in a sense. Um, but, you know, for the doctors, you would think that that'd be kind of a pretty fundamental idea to see where they're looking. Why do you think there were so many historical hurdles or what do you think those might have been that made this research uh, take so long to come at this moment? Well, I don't think it's something unique to, you know, my research, but there's a great deal of inertia in the medical field. Doctors are trained to do things a certain way and perhaps more importantly, they're paid to do these specific procedures. So to get them to adopt something new, not only do you have to show that the technology works, that you can actually do what you say, but then it's got to make economic sense. So, you know, the payers, the insurance companies have to agree, yes, you should be doing this because it'll ultimately benefit the system. But then you also have to educate people. This is, you know, an important technology. This is what you want to do with it. Uh, and then they have to get trained on it. So um, it takes a while for new medical technologies uh, to make it into routine clinical care. You know, with the earlier technologies, uh, they were kind of pricey, and um, that shifted the calculus of whether it was justified for the insurance companies, for example. So even in our work with the early cancer detection, we're now shifting towards lower-cost solutions. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the cost of the equipment, but also the cost of manufacturing, the cost of delivering it to the patients. I believe that that's how you're able to improve access to these great technologies by making them lower cost. You know, if we use the example of the cell phone, you've got pretty amazing technology right there at your fingertips in terms of the camera and the processor and all the information that's there. And it's so readily available because it's become ridiculously low cost. I mean, if you think about all the things that go into your phone, for example, you know, the camera alone, it's gotten so low cost because so many people are using it. So if you're able to get a medical technology out there where lots of people use it and you bring the unit cost down, well, then it kind of feeds on itself and it becomes more readily available. And that's the kind of impetus that I'm looking for here uh, for the medical field to get these technologies out there. We can almost combine the two powerful research findings that you got with low-cost OCT and early cancer detection when we look at your work you're very well known for cellular biosensing as well. Mm -hmm. Being able to diagnose diseases based on cell changes is now possible with your spectroscopic imaging. And in 2016, you gave an example of 
early detection of malaria by comparing healthy red blood cells to those infected with the disease. How would you say this technology advanced in the last few years? And with machine learning eliminating false results, what role do you see it playing in the future of your research? I was trained as a spectroscopist, so it's something that I always turn to. It's actually the really most significant benefit, at least in my view, of using uh, light-based diagnostics is that tissue or uh, cell samples will react differently to different colored lights. And, um, you know, we use that to look at the amount of hemoglobin that was in red blood cells. And uh, we were able to actually observe the consumption of the hemoglobin by the malaria parasite. And then in one of the early examples of using artificial intelligence, machine learning for biomedical diagnostics, we used our uh, imaging data as input to develop a machine learning algorithm. And um, we did get really high accuracy with it. I think this is an important aspect for disease diagnosis that you need to have good accuracy. Sometimes you'll see a diagnostic where they'll really turn up the sensitivity. So for example, if I had an ordinary flashlight and I shined it on things and I said, everything is cancer, well, then I would have 100% sensitivity, meaning that everything, you know, every time I found a cancer, I would have gotten it correct. But the number of false positives really becomes a problem. Because then I think about all the people that I would be treating or just getting them worried about having a cancer when there was really nothing there. So the accuracy is, is very important. When we first started out with the malaria project, you know, we were getting good results, but we're only looking at a handful of cells at a time, maybe 30 or even 100. But on the other hand, in real life, patients with malaria may have a parasitemia level of 1% or even less. That means 1% of their cells are infected. And so you need to have an accuracy better than that if you're going to really be able to detect it. Uh, so we set out to improve our accuracy so that we were at, you know, like 99.99%. And I think we got pretty close to that. What was the bottleneck was our ability to scan lots and lots of cells. So what we're doing now is turning to high throughput measurements, being able to scan a million cells instead of just a thousand, and being able to do it in an amount of time that is satisfactory for biomedical diagnostic just a minute or two instead of, you know, several hours. And finally, we're continuing to use our machine learning by turning over to real-time analysis of these imaging data. So as the cells pass on through on this high-throughput screen, to actually be able to there at that moment take an image and use machine learning to determine if that cell is normal or infected. This is an effort that we've been working on for many months and um, I think we're going to be presenting something kind of cool on it at Photonics West just next month. When you look at all your research, all your careers, a lot of different avenues, did that happen organically or did you just feel this constant need to pursue something new? I do like getting into new fields. It's really exciting for me. I have to say I'm really driven by the technology. I've always been a gadget guy. I like new devices and new technologies that come out. So, um, you know, the low-cost OCT was really stimulated by the availability of 3D printing, which is a really cool technology and is so widely available. I also love the new electronics that are out there, things like the Arduino and the Raspberry Pi. Back when I started out as an electrical engineer, these simple functions of these devices would have taken a long time if you had to build them on your own. And now you can just take them off the shelf. I mean, I'm able to work with my, my daughter, who's a high school student, and you know we can do stuff on the Arduino that... Uh, would have absolutely blown my mind when I was, you know, a high schooler myself. So it is really these new technologies that get me excited 
for example, on the high-throughput biosensing of cells, uh, there I'm really excited about the parallel GPUs, being able to use lots of processing units to analyze your data and do it in real time. I'm continually amazed how we've been able to update our capacity for computing, how fast it goes and how high throughput. And I try my best to stay on top of that, to be able to leverage these advances and turn them into useful biomedical diagnostic techniques. If you were to give advice to undergraduates or graduate students right now who say they really want to reach this high level of success in uh, delivering breakthrough results that you've been able to do, what would you say to them? That's a tough one. I, I, I mean, you know, I, I try and stay true to, you know, what my goals are. That is, if, if you're a person that's going to follow fads and jump on, you know, the bandwagon as it comes by, uh, then for sure you're likely to miss great advances. By the time something has become super popular, it's very tough as a researcher to jump onto that field and continue it. If you have the ability to look forward and see what cool new technologies are coming out and think about how they can impact what you're interested in, then that can be a very powerful combination. The work you're doing in early disease detection is important to everyone, not just scientists. When you look into the future, there'd be 10 or 100 years from now, what do you predict will be the most exciting breakthrough in this technology? I think the, the wide availability of diagnostic techniques. So, um, you know, right now, if you want to get your own health data, maybe you have the number of steps that you took uh, recorded on your phone or your heartbeat. But I think the ability to get that data is going to become much easier. So calling back again to my own field, perhaps with our low-cost OCT, you'll be able to go down to the Walgreens and get a retinal scan. And that might tell you, you know, if I've got early signs of blindness or, you know, diabetic retinopathy, but there's also the ability to see early signs of neurodegenerative diseases. So if you were able to take a scan like this, you might be able to see if I had early signs of Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease. And, uh, you know, that would be really powerful if you were able to see that coming, because then you have the opportunity for some sort of therapy to find out if, oh, a change in diet or this new drug might help prevent Alzheimer's disease. So I think it's the ability to collect this data at the point of care. So being able to see someone's complete health profile and then have it compared to our broad database of that knowledge to make informed health decisions. And finally, in the broad industry of photonics, what is one thing not related to your specific fields that you're really excited about? The research group that I started with in grad school did a lot of work in quantum optics, and I've always been excited about quantum mechanics, and I'm still pretty interested in it. So the one space where quantum mechanics sort of interfaces with things that are really practical is the field of quantum computing. And, uh, you know, this is something that's really exciting at Duke. We have a number of researchers who are pursuing this. And, um, you know, I think that if my career had gone a different way, that might be something that I would be pursuing now. Exciting technology. That's Dr. Adam Wax. He is a professor at Duke University, leading pioneer in tomography and early disease detection. Dr. Wax, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Glad to do it. Thanks for having me. Today's episode is sponsored by MKS Instruments and their Newport brand. The Newport product portfolio consists of a full range of solutions, including precision motion control, optical tables and vibration isolation systems, photonics instruments, optics and optomechanical components. 
For more information, visit www.newport.com. And by Hubner Photonics, a leading manufacturer of high-performance lasers, including the full range of single and multi-line cobalt lasers, C-Wave tunable lasers, and C-Flex laser combiners. A preferred supplier of lasers to major instrument manufacturers and leading research labs for cutting-edge applications in life science, spectroscopy, and quantum research. Find the right laser for your application at www.hubner-photonics.com. That'll do it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our guests, Adam Wax. Our engineers are Alan Shepard and Brian Healy. Our featured artist is Kid Animal out of Los Angeles. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite music app. Thank you most of all to you, our listeners. If you have a suggestion for a story or you just want to reach out, you can email us at allthingsatphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. Subscribe wherever you may be listening and never miss a new episode. You can also subscribe to this podcast on our website, photonics.com slash podcast, where you will find episode notes, links to the complete stories you heard, and some interesting side stories that didn't make it in. I'm your host, Emmett Warren. You've been listening to a Photonics Media production.